Welcome to the Science and Policy Exchange podcast. My name is Ceci. I'm Linda. And I'm Eloise. And we're news researchers at Science and Policy Exchange, or SPE for short. We'll be bringing you all the latest science policy news from within Canada and around the world, as well as letting you know about upcoming policy events within the country. In today's episode, we'll talk to Brian Owens about what the 2022 federal budget is proposing for Canadian research, development and innovation, including the creation of a new innovation agency, which you can read all about in an article that our guest has recently written for Nature. Following last month's episode, which focused on Ukraine, we will ask Professor Richard Sandbrook about the Science for Peace organization based at the University of Toronto and about the role that scientific collaboration has to play in promoting peace internationally, particularly in the context of the current Russian-led war on Ukraine. Finally, Anne Barker will tell us about the Arctic and Northern Challenge program, which aims to address the pressing issues identified by Northern peoples as impacting the quality of life. So without further ado, welcome to SPE Talks. Thank you for joining us today, Brian. Let's start off with laying the groundwork for what Budget 2022 is proposing and where Canada stands in terms of research and development. Can you describe what the current landscape is like to our listeners and how it compares to the other G7 countries? The research landscape in Canada is, uh, I mean, it hasn't changed much the last little while. There's, there's, uh, there was a big influx of new money for basic research a few years ago uh, on the back of the Naylor report, uh, but that's kind of been parceled over the last few years and there's been no kind a real movement on that since then. This most recent budget kind of put a bunch more money into more applied type things on the innovation side. And that's somewhere where Canada has uh, in particular kind of struggled compared to or, or has fallen behind compared to other uh, countries in the G7. Our overall investment in research uh, as a proportion of GDP is second last in the G7, but our business side uh, is, is just atrocious. It's, it's something it's like, you know, around half a percent or something like this. It's really low. Um, far behind all of our peer uh, countries. And so this is a problem that the government's been kind of grappling with for decades, really. Um, and the, in this latest budget, they had a couple of things that they brought in to try and, you know, their, their latest ideas about how to try and, I guess, inspire Canadian businesses to invest more uh, in R&D and be more innovative. You've been reporting in the field for a while. Do you have an idea why Canada has lagged behind so much compared to the other countries? Uh, there's a few reasons for it. I mean, part of it, it's just a bit of how our economy is built. You know, we have always been fairly reliant on commodity exchange. So uh, either forestry or oil and gas, food, anything like that. We don't tend to do a lot of value added type stuff. We kind of produce the commodities and then sell them to someone else who refines them or turns them into products that then sell that to us. And that's kind of worked pretty well for our economy for the most most of our country's history. So it's kind of hard to get businesses out of that rut. They're fairly conservative. You know, the really big Canadian businesses that, that you think of are things like oil companies or banks. There's Finding not, you know, there's no Google or Facebook that's a, that's a Canadian company. We have lots of sort of small innovative startups, but most of our, you know, really big companies that have lots of money or huge profits, they're all fairly conservative businesses in conservative sectors that don't tend to do a huge amount of innovation other than say, you know, I mean, oil and gas does certainly uh, innovation around around how to get to, you know, extracting different kinds of oil from more difficult areas. 
But that's not something that really has a huge spillover into the rest of the economy. It's interesting that you mentioned Google and Facebook because it feels like a lot of Canadian talent as well ends up abroad. <laughs> and so that probably also contributes to this issue as well. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's one of the things that comes up a lot is that uh, people who spend a lot of time thinking about Canadian innovation, uh, one of the things to say is that, you know, Canadian businesses don't see our, like our universities are very innovative. They, they do lots of uh, high quality research. There's lots of areas where we have kind of competitive advantages, but companies don't tend to see universities as places to get inventions or to partner with for innovation. They see them as really great sources of highly educated, highly qualified people. So they, they like to hire people out of the universities, but they're not necessarily interested in partnering with the university to develop a new product or a new process. The new budget has decided to put 1 billion Canadian dollars in new money to invest in research and innovation. Do you think it will help with this particular problem of talent, but also the communication between industries and universities, and also how much of this new budget is redirected from the previous federal budget? Uh, on the R&D side, there, there's no kind of specifically new money for, for uh, R&D. Um, the, the one billion for the new uh, innovation and investment agency, that, that's new money. Whether that works is really going to depend on kind of how it's designed. This was something that back in after the election, there was uh, some talk about creating a Canadian version of DARPA. That seems to have gone away in favor of this new innovation and investment agency. And we can talk a little bit later about what the differences might be or why that might have happened. Um, but it's really going to depend on finding a way to actually get businesses involved. There's been a few different ways that have been tried. They've had mixed success. Um, so it'll really depend on whether we can find a solution that works for Canada, for Canadian businesses, in a way that encourages them to do the investment that we want, that also in a way that benefits them. Let's get into some of these differences then. Um, how is it similar to DARPA? How is it different? And do you think these differences are better for Canada or possibly something that we need to work on? In this one, it's sort of now explicitly no longer going to be like DARPA. I mean, DARPA is a very popular concept that lots of people, including the Americans, um, have tried to duplicate. It's only ever really worked as DARPA. The best one might be the ARPA-E, the energy one in the US, the, the, as the best of the clones, but even that hasn't really been massively successful. The Brits tried to start this in the UK uh, over the last couple of years. It's sort of still ongoing, uh, but it's run into all sorts of trouble. The, the guy they hired to start it has already quit before it even launched. It's just never really been successful anywhere else because it's a very unique agency. You know, you've got the Department of Defense, which has huge amounts of money and patience. They will quite happily pour money into a project that might get them some kind of cool weapon in 20 years. And that doesn't really work in many other areas. You know, you, you have tend to have shorter time horizons. You can't really take the risk of working on some blue sky moonshot project without the sort of guarantee that if you come up with something good, the Department of Defense will just snap it up and pay you for it. And then most of the benefits you hear about coming out of DARPA, the sort of non-military ones of, of uh, GPS or the internet that both came out of DARPA, those are sort of incidental. They were kind of on the side, they were side bonuses that came along based on essentially weapons. And so this, you know, Canada in particular, that's not a great model for Canada. We don't, our military doesn't have a huge budget like that. They don't do a huge amount of R&D themselves. You know, they, they don't tend to develop their own things and there just aren't sort of Canadian companies to take the crazy blue sky idea that came out of this weird military research and turn it into another product. We don't have the, the kind of companies who are willing to pick something up out of the Canadian DARPA or whatever it is, and then spend another 10 years developing it and coming up with something like, um, you know, some kind of internet, I mean, not the internet as a business, but sort of turning that into a, a commercial venture. So the, the new idea has been to uh, look at some other countries that have maybe have more similarities with, with Canada, like Finland, 
in the sense that it was also a very commodity heavy economy that in the 1990s was very de dependent on selling things to the Soviet Union. When that went away, they sort of decided to come, you know, to figure out how to become more innovative. And they had this uh, program called TechS, which is what one of the things that this new Canadian agency is being modeled on. And it's a much smaller uh, you know, shorter term, more more focused on commercialization, less on kind of invention of crazy new blue sky ideas. And so the Canadian Innovation Agency is going to be based on this sort of model. And it's a lot more about, it's it's sort of part venture capitalist or part angel investor and part kind of matchmaker of finding either a, a company might come to them and say, well, we this is something we want to do. We're not entirely sure how to do it. And the agency can then find a university they can partner with or find, so find academics who working in that kind of area. Or similarly, you know, academics might have an idea for a product and, or a small uh, spin-out company, and this agency would help, you know, give them funding for more development, more commercialization, find them commercial partners who might know, you know, the business side. Uh, and that's this is, you know, more likely to be successful in Canada than some kind of blue skies DARPA type agency. It just depends on, you know, how we tailor it to the fact that Canada is much larger physically than Finland. It's got a larger population, so you probably need more money to put into it. You need to think more regionally. You know, in Finland, kind of everyone is going to eventually end up meeting up together in Helsinki at some point. They're not based there. Whereas in Canada, you're, you we kind of have centers around the country. So you need to kind of figure out how our regions and things fit, uh, work into it. So would the agency just be limited to helping Canada internally, or would it also help network Canada with other international players? And is that something that the Finnish agency also does? Yeah, there's certainly um, one of the kind of measures of success that uh, the Finnish agency has is how much foreign direct investment uh, they can attract. So I imagine uh, the Canadian one would have similar kind of goals. You, you could look internationally for, for partners as well, or for funding. The way this has been set up is that it's been announced in the budget, but they don't actually know what it's going to look like. Uh, it's sort of being designed as we speak. And one of the people I spoke to for, for my story in Nature about this, Dan Bresnitz, uh, he's kind of kind of in charge of that. He, he's uh, at the Innovation Policy Lab at University of Toronto, and is also, but is sort of on secondment to the Department of Finance. And one of his jobs is kind of figuring out what this thing is going to look like and, and what kind of structure it should have, what its goals should be, that sort of thing. Uh, but I expect that, yeah, there will be at least some focus on international collaborations or, or cooperation where that's appropriate. In your opinion, do you have any ideas what the scheme should include in order to be successful um, and what elements might be missing from what they've decided to focus on in the budget that haven't been mentioned, for example, um, in order to make sure that we do end up having a very successful innovation agency? Uh, well, if I really knew that, I'd probably have Dan Bresnitz's job. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the main thing that the most important thing is figuring out what works for Canada. It kind of has to have a centralized national reason for existing, but still has to work within this kind of federal regional system that we have. I don't know what the answer is to what something would look like that makes th that strikes that balance, but that's the balance that I expect they'll be looking at very closely as they design this. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode. Could you briefly introduce yourself as well as the Science for Peace NGO that you are currently the president of? Yes, I'm a uh, professor emeritus of political science at the University of Toronto. My area of expertise was actually uh, international development. And I've changed my concern since retirement, quote unquote retirement, to uh, issues such as militarism and climate change and nonviolent action. Science for Peace is a, a 
miniature charity which has existed since 1981 with an initial focus on nuclear weapons that has since broadened its interest to include militarism and climate change uh, as well as the links to um, militarization and to atomic weapons and uh, the focus also on obstacles to scientific exchange provincially and nationally but also internationally. We have five working groups that operate on these various topics. The oldest one is on nuclear weapons. So that, that's how we began as a, uh, an organization for nuclear disarmament. The second one is on militarism and climate change, which does approach climate change, but through the prism of militarization, uh, because there, you know, the United, the U.S. military is the largest single institutional creator of greenhouse gases in the world. So militaries produce an enormous amount of greenhouse gases. Beyond that, the um, uh, increasing military budget taking away from the money that should go into climate mitigation. The third one is on nonviolent resistance, which has quite a long history in Science for Peace. So it is um, an attempt to understand nonviolent ways of dealing with conflict in the world, including the concept of nonviolent or civilian resistance to war, but more generally the role of nonviolent resistance, which in the years 2010 and 2020 was rampant in the world. One third of the countries of the world, nearly, had a major nonviolent resistance movement operating in that period before the pandemic hit. The fourth working group is on NATO to neutrality. And this one is a critical analysis of NATO's role and an argument that Canada should move towards neutrality as its position. And then the final one is on our right to know, which is in a sense most clearly relevant to your organization, which is focuses on the obstacles created by government to scientific research and exchange on a, on a provincial, national, and international level. We have timelines developed showing the various obstacles placed on free scientific exchange. We do all of our work through our working groups, including webinars and so on. So they're essential to our work. And you publish quite regularly on your website as well as on Facebook and Twitter? That's right, yes. Anyone can join these groups. We welcome new members. For anyone who would like to get familiar with your work, it's available on all of these platforms. That's right. Perfect. Thank you very much. In the context of the current war in Ukraine, how can scientific collaboration between countries like Ukraine, maybe Canada, help mitigate the risks to scientific projects that are currently ongoing between these countries? From my perspective, there is, an enor there is a very um, heated debate within the um, community of well-informed people in Science for Peace and elsewhere, of course, in the world. And that is to understand the causes of the war in Ukraine and how it might come about, uh, how it might end. So much of most of our debate is actually centered on the issues of trying to sort out, you know, the motives for the conflict and, and also, of course, what might follow from it and the dangers of the nuclear war and so on. So we don't have direct contacts with Ukrainian scientists as with any other scientists on this issue. But we do have a great deal of, of debate about the subject. Uh, and it's um, enlightening and extremely uh, exhausting because it's such an ongoing and very intense uh, struggle to understand what actually is going on and what it means. I think it's important to, to emphasize the scientists throughout the world, including very brave Russian scientists, have come out against the war. And some of the Russian scientists have suffered sanctions for doing so. So there is a widespread agreement that war is, is, is absolutely the wrong outcome in, in Ukraine, that the negotiations are, are crucial. As for the 
terms of ending the war, this looks very grave indeed. And again, scientists can't do much to um, help in this respect. I mean, what scientists have done, especially international relations experts and peace activists, is to develop a kind of settlement between Russia and the Ukraine that makes sense. That doesn't lead to the complete dismemberment of Ukraine, but does recognize that Crimea is in fact part of Russia, as it has been for long, for many centuries, and does in fact make concessions toward the Donbass region, uh, at least the, the full autonomy that they were asking for before, maybe more than that. Uh, so there, scientists can talk about the kind of deal might make sense, but of course the reality is that the emotions of the day are such in Ukraine that uh, they aren't willing to give up any territory. And uh, the Russians have now expended so much of their uh, political capital as well as military capital in Ukraine that they need to get a major win out of this in order for Putin to continue as president of Ukraine. So unfortunately, in a context of, of war like this, where there's such a high degree of casualties and so much patience, so much enmity between the Ukrainians and Russians, which didn't actually exist to any great extent before, there's a sense of amity because they are closely related. Scientists don't have much um, much purchase on, on the deal, except to stand back and, and condemn the war and call for negotiations and to talk about reasonable basis for a uh, negotiated settlement. I don't think the scientists are really being listened to very much in this conflict, are they? Because, I mean, they're, they're being listened to by other, by other scientists in other countries joining in. There is this, this global uh, kind of scientific community which often agrees on major issues like, like war, peace, uh, and, and uh, climate change. So there is, there is a, a kind of almost consensus on, on these issues. And, and um, given the populist politics in any countries of the West now, where there is a, a complete rejection on the part of the populace of scientific expertise, uh, the voices of scientists are simply um, refused. They are simply rejected, being out of hand as being, uh, you know, elites that are divorced from the real world. So we are, the populist politics of Western countries, uh, including now Canada increasingly, it seems, with the conservative leadership suggesting that populism has more of a base in Canada than we thought, is another part of the very important dimensions of how we, whether we, whether we survive the next 20 or 30 years in any reasonable shape at all. Uh, it's, it's a very, very complex situation of science. It's seen as part of the problem rather than the solution by a large part of the population. The last question concerning uh, Science for Peace. How can we get involved with the initiative and how can we talk about your mission and your goals to advocate for science in your diverse working groups? You know, we started from the University of Toronto, but now Science for Peace using Zoom is more of a national organization. But we, we haven't really been able to sustain a student organization. We've had students in their final year or, you know, becoming president and, and then they, they left and it, there'd be no, no sense of continuity. And it's been a real struggle. We haven't managed to publicize, you know, what we're doing uh, with, with people in university and how they might play a role. They, they're unaware of, of what we are uh, trying to do. So we're thinking of going beyond just a University of Toronto campus group. We're thinking of trying to move towards more of a, um, of a national group. And of course, if we were to involve Quebec, we would need to be bilingual. And um, that's something some of us are able to do. So talking to students who are listening, what would you tell them to get involved? How can they do that? I would just um, suggest they look at our website, which is scienceforpeace.org. 
if they're interested in joining um, a student organization, which is global, trans-Canadian in scope now, to uh, contact our coordinator. The, the number is the, uh, the email is right there on the site. And uh, we will begin to, to organize that. Thank you for your time, for your comments, and for your valued insights. Thanks for calling. I enjoyed it very much. Welcome, Dr. Barker. Which are the main objectives of the Arctic and Northern Challenge program? Sure. And yes, we are so excited about the, about this program and, and really looking forward to the, to the research that will come out of it. Uh, so the vision for the Arctic and Northern Challenge program at NRC is really to support research that results in the daily lives of Arctic and Northern peoples are improved through applied technology and innovation. And this is done and guided by Northerners. At the end of the program, we're really hoping that what we will see is that Arctic and Northern peoples have participated in you know, the design, the governance, delivery, and dissemination of applied research to address the challenges that they have identified. And also that there's a legacy of increased uh, Northern research and developed capacity to solve those issues that have been identified. Wow, it seems... Uh like a lot, a lot of people involved in this program is really interesting. What are the key, the, the key themes of the program? Right. So there's four themes to the, the program and they were selected and established a after more than a year of engagement and consultation with communities, uh, businesses, and governments in the North. And these four themes are housing, health, food, and water. And of course, there was a lot of other priority areas, uh, but we needed to really look at those which were the most pressing uh, for the North. So for housing, you know, we can see research or we can support research that is looking at the adequacy, the suitability and affordability of housing. For health, we can look at uh, research that addresses accessibility, comprehensiveness and appropriateness of healthcare. Under the food theme, we're looking at accessibility, availability and quality of food. And under the water theme, we're looking at availability, accessibility and quality as well. I think it's also important to note that there are two cross-cutting aspects to the program. One I've already alluded to, which was um, that we want to see projects that are building northern capacity across the north for solving those issues that have been identified, but also traditional knowledge and how that will be braided into the study design uh, throughout the each project. So everybody's welcome to, to apply for this program and how we can apply. Yeah, so to apply, uh, the easiest way to do that is to register on our website. And once you've done that, it gives kind of a signal that you're interested in the program. And by email, you'll receive a, a little package. So the package includes um, the the call guide, so how to apply to the program, um, the template for a letter of intent that to signal your interest of, of doing some research, the some guidelines around research ethics that are expected for the program, as well as, you know, just a, a bunch of example project ideas just to, to kickstart ideas for people. When I was like reading this program, uh, I have like this, this question, um, is this the first edition of this, of this kind? 
I guess it, yes and no. <laughs> so uh, and the NRC has over 50 years of research and development uh, to support Canada and Northern residents to respond to priority areas for, for science um, and engineering in the Arctic. Between 2013 and 2021, uh, we completed with success um, our previous Arctic program that supported research looking at community infrastructure, northern transportation, resource development, and technologies uh, for maritime safety. Now, our new collaborative uh, science and technology innovation programs uh, allow NRC to collaborate in a way that we weren't able to do so before. Uh, we can bring together different types of expertise and different knowledge systems through now grants and contributions to support that collaboration. So there have been another kind of uh, similar programs to this one, right? Yes. So there, there have been other programs. Uh, so again, it's kind of a yes and no answer. There, there are a number of programs out there that are really giving priority to research directed by and led by Indigenous peoples. In an Arctic uh, context, a lot of those models are led by Canada, and those could be through organizations like federal government um, departments and agencies, universities, or you know, more, most importantly, from Indigenous governments that can lead and direct their own programs. That being said, uh, previous programs around applied science and engineering are not that common. And so what we're hoping to see from this program is that there's a lot of capacity building to support those areas. So really being able to, to see how this program can build that capacity, take fundamental research to, to its next step, which is applying it, and by doing so, progress research that's, you know, been important, that is important, that's been prioritized uh, by and for Northerners. We really hope like this is, is uh, going to be a, a success program. We're really excited. It's really interesting. So I really thank you for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And I look forward to uh, maybe filling you in on how it's going in, in later years. And that's it from us. SBE is a Montreal-based nonprofit organization aiming to foster the student voice in evidence-based decision-making and to bring together leading experts from academia, industry and government to engage and inform students and the public on issues at the interface between science and policy. We're one of the few bilingual student-led initiatives directly engaging local political scenes and effectively bridging the gap between academia, industry and government leaders. So if you'd like to join us, we encourage you to visit our website at speexchange.ca and fill out the registration form in the Get Involved tab. Or you can just send us an email. You can also find the link and email in the podcast description. If you have a particular science policy piece that you'd like us to feature in future episodes, please contact the news researchers at SPE or interact with us on social media using the hashtag SPE Talks. Thanks again and until next time.